Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting live from the podcast New York studios, it's the all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. I'm Mark James, and this week we kick back for a martial arts-themed duel where I will be representing 1995 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, cracking heads and drinking eggs with the 80s. Say hello to Man Crush. What's up? That's right. It's Man Crush here. I got martial arts of 1985 from the best decade ever. Also joining us on the panel and sweeping the leg of the 70s, he's the media king of the North, so give a bow for Joe Finley. Bless you, man. That word, every single time I hear that, it just makes my heart smile. I got 1975 for the martial arts. Forgive that I'm blurry, but be thankful in the end. Uh, Let's kick some ass. And as always here on the show, we need someone to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So listeners to this show will know him as the karate bad boy, Mike Barnes from Karate Kid 3. And now you can get his new book, The Way of the Cobra. All rise and welcome back to the show, Judge Sean Kanan. Hey guys, how are you? What? Yeah. You you almost made me cry this week when you told us our marketing was a joke. I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) I meant it with love. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our guest judge, Sean Kanan, for the coin flip. Okay, guys, got the coin right here. All right, this week it's going to be between Man Crush and Joe Finley. Joe Finley, why don't you do the honors? Ready? I'm going heads because the head size. It is tails, my friend. I am sorry. Forget it. I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Man Crush, you win the coin toss. That means you take control of the board and get to select our first category. All right, so let's do this one. This seems like it's a hot pick for the first round every time. So let's go hot products for the first round. And let's go November 1st through the 5th of 1985. And just to demonstrate how enormous martial arts were in 1985, I brought this one into the fold. Sure, there were lots of like martial arts VHS tapes, ninja swords, throwing starts, pretty much everything else related that was popular in 1985. However, what the fuck were you going to do with a ninja uniform if you weren't trained <laughs> to be a ninja? 
Were you going to like <laughs> show up to the Elks Club for bingo night wearing your on-train ninja boots? Of course not. Because those guys behind the bar beat your ass and toss you out of the building. What you needed to do before you bought any of the other cool shit, you needed to, you needed to visit Ninja Training Camp. That's right. For three days, you will eat, sleep, train, and even shit like a ninja. You have uh, <laughs> joined Shidoshi, Stephen Hayes. Shidoshi, Stephen Hayes, and USMC Captain John Hoban for an intensive ninja training in Santa Cruz, California, sponsored by the Valley Martial Arts Supply Store. Only then could you legitimately rock a pair of ninja boots and explore the warrior ways of the ninja. Wow. Sign me up. <laughs> I'd make the worst ninja, but hey. Ninja know. shits. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the hot products round? Well, for you, and for you, and for you, I have Karate Men from Aurora Toys. That's how it's spelled. Now, other people just said Karate Men. It's on every vintage toy site that there is. But basically, think G.I. Joe meets Rock'em Sock'em Robots. The guys look very much like G.I. Joe. They had the proper like hairy beards and the whole thing. But they're sitting on a platform with one foot strapped down to it and three buttons. One button was a left punch, one button was a right chop, and the last but and the center button was a kick. If you hit the pressure plate on the chest or if you knock the head back far enough, they would fall down and you would win the fight. Uh, it is uh, all over the place and it was actually seen in an episode of All in the Fa Family where that meathead Michael and Archie actually face off against each other in the living room. Uh, so you can look this thing up for yourself. The commercials are there uh, on YouTube. And it's literally, like I said, it's on every collector's website right now. Uh, you, most of them are naked. I don't know why, but that's Weird. the way it is. Uh, I know. So uh, that's what I got. I got Karate Man from 1975. All right, guys. So for my hot product, we're going to go to an article by Mary Campbell of the Associated Press, November 26, 1995, where the headline reads, Mortal Kombat, best known as an arcade video game, is now a show on the road. Mortal Kombat, a live tour, is basically an evening of, with martial arts, with a little bit of plot, a lot of magic created by special effects, lasers, and smoke. It is an extravaganza. When producer David Fishoff's 12-year-old son learned of his dad's new product, he said, Hey, Dad, this thing's going to be hot. All of our friends play Mortal Kombat all of the time. So we asked his son, Well, what would you like to see? Well, if you can make the characters come to life and do the same moves they do in the video game, my friends would go crazy, his son said. Well, Fishoff says that he was concerned a little bit about the, about the violence in the video game. Uh, we're not creating the violence in the arcade game. He says, we're giving people a, a chance at a nice fantasy fable. Non-stop action by athletes, it's entertainment. We're not tearing off people's heads or blowing them up or tearing their hearts out. Another article I found about this was in the Daily Advertiser out of Lafayette, Louisiana. Now, it said ticket prices ranged from about $9 to $14.50. And then, oddly enough, the article had a very questionable Q&A section. It says, questions about the tour. Question number one, what is the Mortal Kombat Live Tour? 
It is the first interactive high-tech show that combines martial arts, the story of the characters from the video games Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, Laser, Special Effects, and Illusion. Now here where it gets a little shady. The question is, I love the video game. Will this affect how I play the game? And the answer is yes. The show will reveal secret codes to help you reach higher levels in the new Mortal Kombat video game. Without these codes, the higher levels are unattainable. So I'm totally calling bullshit on that. If anybody else knows any different, that you got special codes to get to the high levels on Mortal Kombat 4 by going to the live show, let us know in the comments below. I've never heard of that. but So I give you the Mortal Kombat Tour live in 1995. So that's my hot product. Let's kick it down to our guest judge, Sean Kanan, for the ruling on the hot products round. I'm surprised nobody picked high karate cologne. Uh, <laughs> as much as I did like to play with uh, anatomically incorrect dolls as a young man, I, you know, the, the Mortal Kombat thing, I, I want to go Google this now. This sounds pretty badass. I mean, I don't like the fact that they didn't have any of the flawless victories. No one's spine was getting ripped out. But, you know, doll versus like live action with potential secret codes and everything. I, I got to go. I got to go with Mortal Kombat. And what about Ninja Camp? You just without Ninja Camp, you can't even get to Mortal Kombat. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's like a colossally bad idea for most people. Um, what could go wrong with poison darts, shuriken throwing stars and tabby boots with spikes in them? For some guy that's selling insurance in a cubicle for 14 hours a day. I, let's give him more knives to play with. <laughs> Hold that thought <laughs> until the news round. That was all I'm going to say. Now, the question is, if the people go missing during this camp, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Depends. Sounds like they graduated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Well, I pick up a point. I take control of the board. I get to select our next category. Man Crush, you just teased us with the news round, so I'm tempted to go there. But you know what? Ah, we're going to go to the movies round. All right. Ooh, all right. All right. So a few episodes back, we talked about Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. Well, my movie is about a slightly different Tommy Lee. And this movie is the second sequel to one of my all-time favorite martial arts films. While visiting his sister, Tommy Lee discovers a band of ruthless white supremacists is planning to shatter the peace of a small rural community. But what these thugs don't realize is that with Tommy, they're in for the fight of their lives. With the help of, a, of an honorable sheriff and a headstrong young teacher, Tommy battles back against the hateful group, raging war with everything he has to protect the town. Now, there is no turning back in the best of the best three. No turning back. <laughs> For real this time. <laughs> For real. Now, everyone is screaming like, you have 95. Why didn't you pick Mortal Kombat? Because it has been picked on the show before. I didn't want to go with the movie yet again. So I got to go with some best of the best. So it's a timely film that teaches us the lesson of tolerance and to fight racism. Tommy Lee himself says, you can't fight hate with hate. It will only eat you up inside. Now, originally, the writer Barry Gray wrote the script uh, as an action titled, an action picture called No Turning Back, whose lead was a black Marine heading back from the Persian Gulf. 
But Philip Ree got a hold of the script, read it, loved it. He jumped on board as a producer and then kind of morphed the storyline into what would become Best of the Best 3. So upon reading the script, Best of the Best star Eric Roberts declined to be in the film and was said to be very disappointed upon viewing it. He likened it much to a home movie. You know, the movie itself is actually pretty good. It's got a good cast in it, including Shooter McGavin himself, Christopher McDonald, Gina Gershon as the sassy schoolteacher. We even have the legendary Dee Wallace and Arlie Ermey in, un- in an uncredited role. It's not the best. It's the best of the best three. <laughs> May 17th, 1995. Very nice. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the movies round? All right, so let's go May 3rd, 1985. And much like Mark said, I definitely enjoy the freedom provided from genre episodes, so it's more fun. We get to pick things that we normally don't get to pick, like he was talking about with Mortal Kombat. It's not like the best of the month or the best of the week. We get to pick whatever we want. And you'll see from this selection, I'm really trying to diversify my martial arts a little bit. So once you hear the variant of martial arts that I have in this pick, You'll just you'll see how diverse martial arts were in the mid '80s because the popularity was through the roof. This is 1985. Uh, I've known about this movie my entire existence on this planet. It's one of those movies that you walked past a VHS box, you remember passing it on the shelf. That being said, I rented this movie last night for the first time in my life, <laughs> but I wasn't disappointed. The movie uh, it's directed by Robert Klaus. The same guy that directed Enter the Dragon, Game of Death, Black Belt Jones, The Ultimate Warrior, China O'Brien. So not only does this guy know martial art flicks, he's also worked with some of the best and biggest names in martial arts. Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Jim Kelly, Cynthia Rothrock, and of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So we're in for something special here with this one. All right. Now, this wasn't a world beater at the box office, but it actually did way better than I thought it would have done. If this wasn't 1985 where everyone wanted to be the Karate Kid, I guarantee this movie would have went straight to VHS. That said, it took in roughly $6 million at the gate, which is about $15 million in 2021. So it's not too shabby, especially since the star of this movie was a former U.S. Olympian. I knew which one you're... (laughs) (laughs) He was a former U.S. Olympian. I'm glad Sean knows this. That's what I'm saying about this pick. Uh, but he was supposed to compete in the 1980 Olympics. This is his first and only lead role. Uh, but because Jimmy Carter boycotted the summer games that year, he never got to compete. So that being considered, I don't know, having your own cult classic might have more legs. Cause honestly, when you look at the Olympics, how many gold medalists do you remember from the 1980 Olympics, except for the U S hockey team? which was the Winter Olympics. I don't remember anybody else, even though I was two at the time. If you asked me about the 1996 Olympics, I would have no idea who won medals. But this movie, I will remember it forever. So if I had the chance, I'd personally rather do this, get that gem, put that notch on my belt. So if you're in the mood for a movie that has a mix of Playboy models and Olympic gymnasts, films shot in Yugoslavia, combat grunting that sounds like orgasming, Fictional countries that refuse to join the 20th century, bizarre endurance competitions to the death, double crosses, terrorists, batshit, crazy villagers, and the Cold War, then you need to go out and get yourself a copy of the cult classic, Jim Cotta. And seriously, how can you not watch a movie with a tagline, a new kind of martial arts combat, the skill of gymnastics, the kill of karate? I mean, it's come on. Slam dunk. 
Fantastic. All right, Joe Finley, let's hear your offerings for the movies round. All right. Well, I'm going to help lead Sean away from the village of the crazies for a minute. And you talked about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but I have a three named gentleman who is more badass and blows this one right out of the water. I give you Rudy Ray Moore. <laughs> Dolomite. And I give you Dolomite, released April 26th, 1975. Listen to this description. So Dolomite is a pimp, comedian, and nightclub owner who is serving 20 years of prison after being set up by a rival, Willie Green, and framed by Detective Mitchell and White at the direction of the mayor. Released by the governor, thanks to lobbying by fellow pimp Queen Bee, Dolomite is freed in order to discover the source of -of out-of-control drug problem in the fourth ward of the city and take revenge on the corruption that put him in prison. Uh, He too rekindles his reputation on the streets while trying to get back his total experience club from the hands of Willie Green. He enlists the help of Queen Bee and his stable of Kung Fu trained prostitutes. (laughs) That's it. All right. That's where the tie in is. Yes. (laughs) He also does claim to be uh, like in most of his movies, he claims to be a martial artist in and of himself, but he's obviously not. Anyways, the movie garnered two sequels, one in 1976, another one in 2002. And uh, obviously, most recently, the autobiographical Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy came out. Uh, He was also actually been name dropped in a ton of rap music and has been named by people like Luther Campbell and Big Daddy Kane as a gigantic influence on the early rap game. So this guy has all kinds of legs, except he pays those legs to kick other people for him because they're prostitutes and they know Kung Fu Dolomite. 1975. Fantastic. Let's kick it down to Sean Kanan. Can't wait to hear his ruling on the movies round. You know, I was pulled one way, then the other. You, know, you, you kind of had me at best of the best. I've worked with Eric Roberts. I've worked with Arlie Ermey. Love both those guys. Arlie Ermey's uh, passed on. Um, I got to go with the second best of the best as being the second best with Sonny Landham. As the yeah. you know, out of control, drunk, uh, uh, half what was that half brother of Tommy or what was I forget who it was anyway. Yeah. He was great. Um, and then and then and I knew the man crush was going to pick Jim Cotta. The minute I heard <laughs> five, I, I was already thinking it's Jim Cotta, which is just I mean, it stinks on ice. I mean, it's 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 beyond <laughs> a bad movie. Um, it's riveting. It's like a car crash that you just can't. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as a cinephile, I mean, I got to give it to Dolomite. I mean, he, it's the crown jewel of exploitation films. As you said, it spawned two other ones, not to mention uh, the Eddie Murphy film, which I thought was terrific. Um, yeah, and, and, and Rudy Ray Moore, by far and away, uh, had the least martial arts ability of anyone else in the other two films, uh, which I think made it even funnier. So I'm going to have to go with Dolomite on this one. Thank you. Now you do some karate and martial arts yourself. Could you do something that Kurt Thomas could have done in Jim Cotta? Hell yes, he could. I, I, I probably could have remembered my lines. <laughs> Dude, there was only like, like they had like four or five words in a row. <laughs> like every line. It's like, that guy's bad. Kill him. Bad okay. guy is horrendous. I don't remember who played it, but it was like off the Richter scale. 
oh, dude, that guy looked like Hugh Jackman's like doppelganger. Right. But it was totally was not Hugh Jackman. It really was uh, a very entertaining film. And if, if, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it to everybody. Please have some alcohol with it. <laughs> I wish I did last night. All right, Joe Finley, you pick up a point, you tie up this game, but more importantly, you take control of the board heading into our final one-point round. All right, guys, um, we've said it a couple of times. I think it's time to do it now. Let us go to the news. All right, so I want to take you to May 1st of 1975, and this story doesn't start with a martial artist, but with a boxer. The boxer of the 70s, well, there were many, but Muhammad Ali... We start there as Muhammad Ali spars with karate champion Joe Hess. So basically what happens is uh, karate and the time, actually what I almost covered for this story, every newspaper I found had some article about karate is taking over. Taekwondo is taking over. The schools were popping up more than ever. I think it became, this is the point when it became more than just something you saw on T like on TV or in the movies and became something just more. And, uh, and people were taking it seriously. Finally to make himself seem more serious and more legitimate. Joe Hess uh, put out an open challenge to both Muhammad Ali and George Foreman uh, for an exhibition bout. Uh, neither had taken him up on it, but on May 1st, he shows up uh, at the gym where Muhammad Ali was sparring with Jimmy Ellis, who had just recently lost an exhibition bout against a karate champion, which was actually refereed by Muhammad Ali. Ah. Ali called the fight when the guy got up after being kicked in the face and he saw the glassy eyes and he called the technical knockout. Uh, so the two faced off with each other for about 40 seconds. All it, all it was, it was a couple of kicks. He actually caught a toe to Muhammad Ali's ear at that point, and it got shut down immediately. Uh, Hess said that Ali hmm. was nothing but uh, kind to him, was actually willing to do the fight, but not without the right price. And he had wanted a $10 million purse. Uh, for this fight, which nobody was biting for. He actually told Hess in private that he was going to split the 10 million with him uh, one way or the other, which he said, I don't know if he would keep his word, but it was very nice of him to say. Uh, but, you know, he made a strong showing against arguably the greatest fighter in the world at that point. And the fight didn't happen in the end. It could have, uh, but that's where we're at. So, uh, Joe, you know, Joe Hess, Muhammad Ali squaring off for just a very brief period of time, May 1st, 1975. 40 seconds. It took you longer to read the article than the fight. <laughs> Don't you get started on how long it takes to say something. <laughs> All right, guys. So for my news article, we're going to go over to the Palm Beach Post, June 15th, 1995, uh, for an article by staff writer Natalie Hopkinson. And it reads, he doesn't look much like the actor Ralph Macchio these days. But Karate Kid Bill DiClemente lives right here in Boca Raton's Minzer Park. The 49-year-old 8th degree black belt is the original Karate Kid, the inspiration for the trilogy of movies in which Ralph Macchio starred. It started out as a nickname when I used it in 1966 at his training center, and it became a registered as a trademark, DiClemente said. DiClemente said he knew the author of the story, Robert Kamen, well. They grew up in the same New York City neighborhood. 
He used to come and watch me when I was teaching on the beach during those hot summer nights in mid-1960s. Came and created a, the characters based on a blend of people from that exact same Queens neighborhood. He also incorporated techniques that DiClemente used to teach his students at his karate school in Queens, named the Karate Kid Dojo. He taught this specially Okinawan uh, origins of uh, Shorin Ryu karate. However, DiClemente's own mentor was nothing like Mr. Miyagi. He was a tough Irishman and only five years a senior. His name was Jimmy Fitzgerald. So that's the original Mr. Miyagi is uh, Jimmy Fitzgerald. So DiClemente said that he was a real-life Jimmy Cagney. One scene that was taken directly from the movie from DiClemente's life, he says, is when he was uh, learning the palm heel block, which is also when, uh, you know, Ralph Macchio was painting the fence in Karate Kid. So the article goes on to talk about how DiClemente will go back to his first love of teaching, and he's opening a school right in Boca Raton. So, and then he's also plans on writing a book. Now, side note, DiClemente did sue the makers of the Karate Kid over the use of his famous nickname, but the lawsuit was dismissed because no one had really ever heard of DiClemente or his nickname. So I give you the real Karate Kid, June <laughs> 1995. <laughs> I like that. All right, Man Crush, can't wait to hear what you have for the news round. Oh, man. All right. So uh, I'm not going to pander to the judge like Mark did. So we're going to go uh, October 16th, 1985. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here. It's a wild story. So just bear with me. The martial arts tie-in will reveal itself. I promise you. The story, it was just too good to pass up. I read this to Mike Ranger last night, who's in our chat right now, and he lost his shit. Uh, th this news right here, it feels like it's straight out of Unsolved Mysteries. So I actually dug a little deeper and I went over the, like the next several years to get more details. So I kind of corrected the original story if they came out with more details. Right. So the title of this article is Tennessee Grand Jury Begins Probe of Thornton by Andrew Wolfson out of the Kentucky Courier Journal. All right. A federal grand jury in Knoxville, Tennessee, has begun investigating the mysterious life and times of Andrew Carter Thornton II the former Lexington police narcotics officer who parachuted to his death last month with $14 million worth of cocaine in one backpack and another backpack filled with survival gear. And I note, here's a note, uh, in an article I found from 1986, it said that that bag of survival gear must have knocked him unconscious when he opened his parachute, and that bag had two pistols, knives, maps, night vision goggles, food, six South African gold coins, and verses citing the virtues of a mercenary lifestyle. And a bunch of spas. Yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't make it start fucking weird. All right. So listen to this. In, ad in addition to the 79 pounds of cocaine found strapped to Thornton's body, 200 additional pounds of cocaine were later found hanging from a parachute in a tree in northern Georgia, which had also been linked to, George to Thornton. And uh, in articles I found from 1986, they claimed it was up to 825 pounds of cocaine that they found in those backpacks in Georgia. So the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they have been examining whether another plane that crashed on September 29th may have been sabotaged as a revenge plot for the cocaine theft orchestrated by Thornton and others. So then I found in a newspaper from two years later that they confirmed that David Cowboy Williams, who was on that plane, was an associate of Thornton's, and he was co-named a co-conspirator 
in that Thornton case. And that was from two years later. In other developments, it was learned that Thornton, who was also a lawyer, by the way, I, I told you guys he was a narcotics cop. He was a lawyer, disbarred. I'll get to that later. Uh, he had been training in night combat techniques for more than a year with a martial arts instructor in Louisville. Henry Cook, who runs Uniworld Combat Systems, Inc., said Thornton had been learning to fight enemies at night by sensing changes in air pressure caused by the movements of adversaries. Thornton was reaching the status of an expert in Asian knife finding techniques and earned the equivalent of a brown belt in karate two weeks before his death. And I quote, this is coming from Cook. He said uh, he could handle three people at one time unarmed and four to five people with a blade. Thornton lived in Lexington, but drove to Louisville in a white Jaguar every Tuesday for martial arts training. Cook says he reminded me of a rich polo player, a real jet setter, Paul Newman type. Cook said he met Thornton in 1983 in Hamilton, Ohio at Ninja Training Camp. <laughs> Despite Thornton's regular meetings with Cook, he never actually discussed, discussed anything from his personal life. Cook said he once told him, the less you know about me, the better. And uh, this is the last part. Uh, Thornton had his, uh, his bar license suspended in 1982 after being convicted of a misdemeanor in connection with a marijuana smuggling conspiracy. He was also a former decorated uh, combat paratrooper and a pilot. And in his will, he told his friends and family to remain happy and throw a party. How fucking weird is that? With 800 pounds of cocaine, you could have a hell of a party. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over Georgia. Just go find it. <laughs> well, you you know he jumped out of the plane, and uh, what they theorize is he opened up his parachute, and since he was carrying these two bags, the one bag smacked him in the face and knocked him out, and then it kind of just made like uh, he just tumbled all the way to the ground. <laughs> they found him in some dude's backyard on top of the bag of coke. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I mean, that story is extraordinary. I mean, that's just you know you, you dug deep on that man crush. Good for you. Uh, okay, uh, Muhammad Ali, Joe Hess. Uh, people always talk about, you know, the classic fight between a pugilist and a martial artist. I find that really interesting. Um, a class move by Muhammad Ali to split the 10 million. Who knows if he would have done it, but probably. Um, that's a good story. I like it. Moving to the second <laughs> one. Uh, what was the second one? Refresh my memory really quickly. Oh, it was uh, the real Karate Kid? The real Karate Kid, right. <laughs> right. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, the guy definitely needs to, to take a class in copyright and, uh, you know, uh, branding and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, he actually went to have a court case knowing he didn't have the, the legal copyright uh, the trademark to that. So I don't know. Um, both great stories, you guys. But, you know, the other one was just like an epic tale uh, that involved. <laughs> So many interesting things conjured up images of um, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, B BD, <laughs> his, no, I mean, Thor BD, yeah, <laughs> DB Cooper, the second DB, yeah, right? You know? Uh, and you know, in the, in the spirit of keeping the game interesting, you know, uh, all things being equal, I am going to give it to Man Crush so that we got a three way tie going here, like cats in a burlap sack. Now, let's start smacking it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you have control of the board. We got the television round and the music round left. Where are we going, man? Uh, let's go TV first. 
Let's rock this one out with TV. So let's go uh, July 18th, 1985. And surprisingly, I couldn't find any martial arts related TV that began or ended in 1985. I was honestly shocked that a martial arts cartoon or TV show hadn't launched in the middle of the greatest decade ever, which I said before, and I stand by it. So either it was so shitty I missed it or it just didn't exist. However, (laughs) I thought back to my childhood and I got to thinking. My family only really had HBO in the mid-80s, so where the hell did I watch movies? Either I rented it, I saw it on HBO, or I saw them on basic cable. So I started thinking about USA Channel, WWOR, and WPIX specifically. And for the people in chat that know this, WWOR, WPIX, those are primarily New York-based channels. Then it dawned on me, and I remembered spending like Saturday afternoons watching either Kung Fu Theater on USA or Black Belt Theater, which was on like our local channels. Like either I can't remember which one was which. So from there, I went over right over to our sponsors at newspapers.com and painstakingly went through every mention of those shows until I found a movie that I liked that was playing. And as annoying as it was to go through each one one at a time, it was even more annoying to just select one that was playing because there was gold on these shows because I lived on these shows growing up. But then I came across one. I'm going to butcher the shit out of the name. It was like uh, Gek Itusu Satujin Ken. I think that's what it is in Japanese. I don't know. I'm probably wrong. Uh, And I was like, you know, that one, it sounds awfully familiar, but I'll keep digging. And then I started digging and I saw uh, Blood of the Dragon pop up a bunch of times with the name Satujin Ken 2 next to it. So I was like, wait a minute. All right. So that must have been the sequel to that other one. Let me look it up. So I look it up and it's none other than the Sonny Chiba classic, the Street Fighter from 1974. Oh, wow. They were playing. Jeez. I mean, who doesn't enjoy a movie about a badass martial arts mercenary who will do anything for money? Sonny Chiba, he's a badass antihero. Yeah. You know, people like Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, he played the good guy. He took out the bad guys. Chiba's characters, he literally would kill anyone for cold, hard cash. Anyone. It didn't even matter. You watch these movies. When you're talking about, like, violent, brute force, you think Sonny Chiba. The Street Fighter, it was rated X in the United States for violence alone. And, look, he he makes a dude puke on screen by hitting him. He knocks another dude's teeth out. He rips a dude's throat out decades before Dalton did that shit. He shatters a dude's skull in X-ray in the movie, which is an awesome picture, especially for 1974. And he concludes it by ripping a dude's balls off. The guy, it was like an attempted rape, and he like he breaks it up and rips a dude's balls off. I mean, dude, he's uh, Sonny Chiba. He's a uh, first-dan black belt Kempo, first-dan black belt Kendo, second-dan black belt Judo, fourth-dan black belt Nujitsu. So this dude is a certified ass-kicker. So if you've never seen the Street Fighter trilogy, I highly recommend this one. If you're a fan of Bruce Lee, you need to give Sonny Chiba a chance. And it, you, maybe you have already. But shit, look at it this way. Clarence took Alabama to see Street Fighter on their first date. That's reason enough to win this round. And of course, I'm talking about true romance for the people who don't know. But that's what I bring you. Excellent. All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the television round? Well, first, I would like uh, to thank Man Crush for proving the 80s dominance by having a movie from the 70s in it. Uh, (laughs) 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 But uh, but I was thinking 
this pretty much the same thing. I'm like, again, this is the time of Bruce Lee movies and things like that. I'm like, there has to be something good uh, martial arts on TV around this time. And it just so happens that the martial arts TV show had its final episode on April 26, 1975. I give you the episode called The Last Raid, the final episode of Kung Fu. Oh. So uh, we know the story. Kwai Chang came. Uh, well, you know, is a Shaolin monk in the old West. And in this final episode, he helps a black and white family whose sons were kidnapped by a rogue Confederate soldier. The TV show won three Emmys in its three year run. It actually didn't end because of low ratings. Its ratings were considerably high, but David Carradine left the, uh, the show because of uh, just wear and tear on his body. He didn't think he was going to be able to sustain it anymore. Uh, so he did that. He did end up doing a movie. Uh, the spinoffs were actually really interesting with this. So he did a movie in 1986 that starred him and ironically, Brandon Lee. And the reason that that's ironic, anybody who doesn't know, is there was a big controversy uh, that Brandon or that Bruce Lee had developed this story uh, with CBS, who then and he was meant to star in it. And he actually said that on in a uh, in an interview in 1974. And then CBS went on to create the show without him and cast David Carradine in the Kwai Chang Kane role. Uh, there are a lot of disputes about it, uh, but uh, Bruce Lee's wife uh, put it in both her memoir and in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story based on the memoir covering the whole event. But to then cast Brandon Lee as Kwai Chang Kane's son in this movie was uh, something interesting. But then it gets even weirder. The next spinoff is called Kung Fu, The Next Generation, starring Brandon Lee, but not as the character he played in the movie. He plays Johnny Kane, the great-great-grandson of Kwai Chang Kane, who is in America. Then you go further into the future and you get Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, the American-Canadian co-production. Huh? Chris together. Potter. Yeah, with, I love me some Chris Potter, but also with David Carradine returning as his own grandson, Kwai Chang Kane. <laughs> so just so much craziness uh, in all of that in general, but that was his final, ep that was the final episode of this very popular show. And that was on April 26th, 1975. All right, guys. So for my television offerings, we're going to go to the Los Angeles Times, April 7th, 1995, where our headline reads, Cable's No Rules Fighting Event, a hit and a target. It's being touted as the most brutal martial arts competition there is, and it's coming straight at you at 6 tonight, live from Charlotte, North Carolina on pay-per-view with a taped replay at 8 p.m. It's the Ultimate Fighting Championship Five, whose announcer boasts that you have no rules, no limits, and no way out. Rather than traditional ropes, the ring is surrounded by a five-foot wire mesh fence, caging the fighters in like animals. Repeated punches to the groin, kicks to the face, and prolonged chokeholds all take place in full view of the audience and are legal. Now, Dan the Beast Severn would go on to win that night's tournament, which featured other UFC legends such as Guy Metzger and Oleg Tektarov. But the uh, the big ticket for that one was UFC 5 had the first ever super fight, uh, which continued the rivalry between Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock in a fight that would be, up to that point, 
the most anticipated fight in UFC history. That fight led to the highest pay-per-view buy rate that USC had achieved up to that point. And uh, Ken Shamrock's only defeat in the UFC up to that point was to Hoist Gracie in UFC 1. But much to the dismay of the fans in attendance who showered them with boos and calls of bullshit, uh, the fight would go to a draw after a five-minute overtime period. Yes, they had instituted the first ever time limit in the UFC. That was one of the new rule changes. It was the first time this would ever be implemented. It was also the last time that UFC co-creator Rory and Gracie would be involved with, with the UFC because of such a rule. It went totally against his family's principles of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I give you the legendary UFC 5. April 1995. Okay, well, there's so much to unpack here, guys. First of all, um, I was at UFC 1. Oh, and damn. I was with Ken Shamrock the night before his fight, hanging out. Ken is a, a God, Ken's a legend. Uh, he's in my second book, Success Factor X. And, you know, the funniest thing about that was you had um, uh, Jim Brown and you had uh, Superfoot Wallace. And, uh, you know, these guys had never seen jujitsu before, really. And so they're trying to call what's going on. And they're just like, I think he's got his foot. He's, I don't know, he's grabbing. Like, and, and, and there were there were really no rules. And some of the fights, especially the prelim fights that they didn't show on TV, were absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. I was like ringside at that thing. Uh, they, they flew me and uh, a guy named Herb Perez out. Terrific guy who won the... Uh, gold medal in Taekwondo in the Barcelona Olympic Games. They sort of had us there to, uh, you know, just give our insights on it. Um, okay, so that's a good story. Um, I'm a huge Kung Fu fan, though. And um, actually, uh, I was supposed to play uh, David Carradine's son in the one until they moved it up to Canada. Uh, we had the same agent. They took me out to his ranch. On a Sunday, I showed up with my agent. David answered the door in a, in a kimono, barely covering his nether regions, with a high ball of vodka. And he proceeded to say, let's go ride it. And um, we did. And he fell off his horse and did an absolutely perfect roll and got up. And then proceeded to ask if I wanted to uh, play with swords. And I said, no. Um, <laughs> there was a horse in his kitchen. Uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, yeah, he lived on this crazy farmhouse. The horse kind of got, yeah, anyway. Um, oh, boy, this is a tough one. Uh, and then Sonny Chiba, right? Yeah, Kung Fu Theater. Yeah, Sonny Chiba. Wow, these are all really good guys. Um, I think, you know, I think I'm going to have to give it to Joe just out of respect for, for you know, Kung Fu the series and what an epic uh, – series it was and that that was its final episode uh and it's such an important piece of of martial arts history and it's really the preeminent piece of um uh martial arts television and so yeah i'm gonna have to i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to give it to joe wow all yeah. right joe we're heading into the music round you have a commanding lead uh would you like to go first or would you like to defer I'm deferring. I defer. Ooh, all right. I want to I wanna hold off. All right. I'll start off this round then. 
Uh, you know, when you think of 1990s music and martial arts, of course, the first thing to come to mind, you would think would be the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. You know, it was so legendary with the techno, and but not for me. For me, only one group comes to mind, and of course, that would be the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> you know, I mean, they made a practice of sampling Shaw Brothers movies and other kung fu classics right in their songs. So in 1995, we returned to the 36 Chambers with Old Dirty Bastard. March 8th, 1995, the crazy one of the group, ODB as the friends call him, he drops an album that not only would pay homage to the 1978 kung fu classic, The 36 Chambers of Shaolin, but it's actually also a tribute to his Wu-Tang brethren, as the 36 chambers refer to the combined number of chambers from the hearts of all nine Wu-Tang members. Now, the standout track on the album for me is Shimmy Shimmy Ya, which of course was produced by RZA. It was ranked number 59 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of All Time in Hip Hop, and it peaked at number 62 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Now, also... How can we forget Brooklyn Zoo? Shame on you! It was the number one single off that album, and Old Dirty Bastard's second highest charting single right behind Got Your Money. Overall, it's a monumental album in hip-hop history. Fantastic. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, the Dirty Version was nominated for the 1996 Grammy Award for Best Rap Album, but they did lose that night, unfortunately, to Naughty by Nature. In 1998, the album was selected as one of the source's 100 greatest rap albums of all time. So, I give you for your listening pleasure, Return to the 36 Chambers, The Dirty Version, by Old Dirty Bastard, March 28th, 1995. Good call. All right. All right. Let's toss it down to Sean Kanan. Oh, no. Can we? No. All right. Man Crush, you're up next. Uh, what did you bring for the music round? All right. This one's for, uh, for Stacy Lanigan. Listen up here. Uh, April 1st, 1985. She's calling for it in the chat. And, uh, I'm going to go with a soundtrack right here. Uh, for th- this is my music selection. I love this movie. Uh, this was the second movie I ever saw in theaters. I'm sure I mentioned this on the show before. Strangely, I remember everything from that afternoon, spring of 85. My sister and I, we were staying in my grandparents' house in Congers, New York, and we were both bored out of our minds. It was raining outside. My sister was somehow she convinced my grandmother to bring us to a movie. And keep in mind, like I was seven at the time, my sister was 14. So we grab a newspaper. And the choices that I remember were Desperately Seeking Susan, Friday the 13th Part 5, Porky's Revenge, Police Academy 2, and this movie right here. As one would expect, we're brother and sister. Arguments ensue. She wanted to see the Madonna flick. I actually wanted to see Friday the 13th 5. I'm, my parents, I'm a degenerate. I grew up on Friday the 13th, so I wanted to see the fifth one. When it was all said and done, we were on our way to the theater to see Police Academy 2. So we get to the theater. My my grandmother goes up to get the tickets the, because the line is like crazy long. She's there forever. My sister just didn't want to stand with her because she's 14. She don't want to stand next to her grandmother. You know how it is. So she walks back to us with tickets to The Last Dragon. And at the time, 1985, I hadn't heard of the movie. I was seven. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. My sister was pissed and my grandmother fell asleep during the first 10 minutes of the movie. But it's shocking how like 
I can remember that entire experience like it was yesterday, and I could not tell you what my three meals were from yesterday. <laughs> that said, I love this movie, so I'm glad that it happened the way it did. Uh, anyway, like, is is there anything that I need to say about this? It hasn't been said already. It's a Barry Gordy classic, founder of Motown Records. You got Vanity, Stevie Wonder, DeBarge. Smokey Robinson, Rockwell, The Temptations, just to name a few on this album. DeBars went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with the single Rhythm of the Night. And how can you forget my favorite, my favorite, like on the whole soundtrack? And I'm going to do it on my chair right now. Let's see. When you got that glow. Can you guys see my glow? Is it doing <laughs> oh, it oh, on oh, my chair? A tiny bit. I was I was hoping. Oh, there, there it you is. Go. Can you see it? There it is. I got the glow, baby. What do you got the glow? Where's we need Mike Ranger oh, to do this I, right I, now. He can wrap the whole. I do thing that out. all the time. When you got the glow, the flow, the glow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the master? Oh God, it's so good, good movie. Yeah, it's the Last Dragon soundtrack. All right, Joe Finley, why don't you wrap us up with your music selection? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you going in to this knowing the year that I had and knowing what we had to do before I even started my research on this particular topic, I prayed, put my hands together and I looked up and I said, dear God, let Kung Fu fighting have come out in 1975. Bad news. It didn't. It came out in 1974. Yeah. Good. Good news. An album came out by Carl Douglas, who made Kung Fu Fighting, called Kung Fu Fighting and Other Great Love Songs, which features <laughs> Kung Fu Fighting <laughs> as, its, nice. as its main single. But in addition to that, it has his second biggest hit of all time, Dance the Kung Fu. So he made numerous TV appearances and made a music video for that particular song. But to have on that album, while... Kung Fu Fighting was only ever released as a single in 1974. It was February of 1975 that it was released officially on an album with Dance the Kung Fu, Carl Douglas, Kung Fu Fighting, and other great love songs. Wow. I don't know if those other two picks were necessary, but we'll try again. We'll toss it down now to Sean Kanan for the uh, for the ruling on the Who music round. Think of, uh, you know, a warm fireplace, cracking a bottle of champagne. You're there with your lady and then playing uh, Kung Fu Fighting. Uh, obviously, one of the greatest <laughs> love songs of all time. Uh, huge Carl Franklin fan. Uh, Joe crafty i like how you got in there with the basically like the carl franklin sequel so it did fall into the parameters of of the proper year um god you know i, I have to be really honest i'm not tremendously familiar with that wu-tang album and I, I i you know it's it's to my shame and chagrin shame on you i am a huge <laughs> fan of all things motown not to mention show enough um, Barry Gordy's son, Ty Mac, incredible movie, still stands up. Uh, man crush, I gotta I gotta give it to you. And I still got the glow when you got the glow. You know, I don't even know the rest of the lyrics, but it's it's close. <laughs> All right, that ties up Man Crush and Joe Finley. So we are going to go to a final wild card round between the two of them. All right, man crush, you're up first. All right, we'll do this quick. I know Sean's got to get out of here, so I'm I'm going to pander to Sean right now. So we're going to go November 8th, 1985. I'm going to pull a card right out of Mark's playbook, 
And uh, this is an article that's uh, set expensive for Karate Kid sequel. Karate Kid 2 ups the budget from $9 million to $14 million for the sequel. You know, the whole thing is that there's interesting stuff that's in this article. It's not even just about that. One, the movie's shot in Hawaii and not in Okinawa. The entire set was built down there, right down to the Shinto Shrine, the, the Fields of Rice, the Turnip Garden. Everything was done down there. Then they talk about somebody that Sean would probably know. Uh, John, how do you say his last name correctly? So I don't butcher the director, it. Butcher it. John Abelson. Abelson, yeah. So they're they're talking about how he like meticulously choreographs all the fight scenes, how Ralph Macchio gets a double to perform all the hard stuff. And then he goes on to talk about how he had like dry years after Rocky. And the phone only started ringing again once he did Karate Kid, which is actually interesting because he mentions in this article that he passed on Kramer vs. Kramer the China Syndrome, Serpico, and Rocky too, because he said he couldn't believe how dumb they made Rocky in the sequel. So he turned it down. But then he he said he regretted that. And then it goes on. It's actually a pretty long article. I'll fish it right here. It goes on to say that uh, Pat Morita, he never actually spoke Japanese because he was born in California. And uh, Morita, he did say in the article, and I quote right here, he says, I took a crash course in Japanese from my Jewish American doctor who actually spent 22 years in Japan. And then uh, Pat Morita finishes up the whole article by saying uh, that since he's now he's working again, his wife can actually say she loves him in public. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, over to you for the wild card round. Well, I'm going to thank uh, Man Crush again for doing some of the groundwork for me. Who was the person that you said was uh, such a badass in that 1974 movie? Nobody. Oh, just uh, Sonny Chiba, was it? <laughs> uh, well, I have a movie from December 27, 1975, starring Sonny Chiba, and it translated into English as uh, Fighting Karate Brutal Ultimate Truth Fist. Not the title they went with here. Uh, the title they went with here was Karate Bear Fighter. And it's a much more serious uh, story than that. He actually plays Masatatsu Oyama, who is the founder of uh, Kyokushin Karate in Japan. And it follows his real life. And it's based on a manga that was based on his life. The manga translated to A Karate Crazy Life. Uh, and it's just the crazy stories about the guy who founded this form of martial arts uh, starring Sonny Chiba. And yes, he does fight a bear, not a real bear, one who's in a bear, a man in a bear costume. Uh, but Sonny Chiba for the win, I think. I don't get a vote, but Sonny, Sonny Chiba or the movie? Come on. Come on, Joe. Be honest. Both, baby. Yeah. Karate bear fighter. Okay, there it is. Karate bear fighter versus Karate Kid 2. All right, let's toss it down to Sean Kanan for the final ruling on this game. Oh, boy, this is tough. A guy in a bear suit doing martial arts. And then, of course, what do I get thrown out of the union if I don't pick, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a no-win situation for me. Um, well, look, uh, yesterday was my buddy Yuji Okamoto's birthday. Yuji, of course, played Chosen in The Karate Kid 2. And you know what, as great, as great a dig as, as man fighting bear, karate bear was man crush. I got to give it to you. Karate kid too. And I still got that glow. Hey dude, I know you're on a time crunch. I just want to ask you about your book real quick before you go. 
Yeah, I got my new book out. Uh, it's called Way the Cobra. And, you know, um, the book is something I'm really proud of. Uh, it's structured like you are students in my dojo, the dojo of Cobra life. I'm the sensei. Uh, Cobra is an acronym for character optimization, balance, respect, and abundance. Um, you know, about three years ago, I had a time in my life when, um, you know, I had some pretty, pretty significant successes. I had a couple of epic failures and I was 35 pounds overweight, no uh, acting jobs in sight. And I realized I was going to have to do some things differently very quickly. I decided that rather than uh, wait for my ship to come in, I was going to build the ship. And these are the battle tested strategies that I used to achieve some, some pretty incredible things. In, in that one year, I lost the 35 pounds. I co-authored Success Factor X, my second book, which became an Amazon new release bestseller. And I got my show Studio City uh, on the air. We were nominated for eight Emmys and won one. And I don't say any of that to impress anybody, simply to impress upon you what is possible. So please check it out at wayofthecobra.com. Get them while they're hot and come join the dojo. For sure. I got mine coming. Like, I'm sad. I didn't get my book before you came on, uh, but I will have it on Monday. Uh, but just reading through your website, I want to run through a wall just from like what you wrote. <laughs> so before you get out of here, inspire the rest of us. Just explain waking up the beast inside. Because I think that's one of those things people read and they're like, right. what? Ah, so okay, I got to see basically The tagline for the book is unleash your inner badass. Everybody has an inner badass. You may not have discovered it yet. It might have gotten lost but everybody has one. And I say in the beginning of the book, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Here's the bad news. Uh, I say that, you know, uh, I don't have, I don't have a silver bullet. I don't have uh, a magic potion that's going to turn you into this uber successful driven beast that we all want to become. But here's the good news. It's like the Zen riddle. How did the ship get in the bottle? It was already there. Everything you need is already within you. You just have to learn how to tap into it. And the strategies that I have in this book and the ability to get clear with what your success is, what your why is. These are the things that allowed me to achieve a lot of what I achieved. And believe me, you know, I am a very, uh, you know, I have my own garden variety of flaws and, and, and I'm a relatively normal guy. And if I can do it, you can do it. And I know that the information in this book has the ability to transform. If you transform yourself, you can transform the world. Awesome, dude. That's it. You gave me goosebumps on your way out, but all right. Thank you so much again, bro. Uh, good luck on your, the next thing you got going on after this, please come back anytime, bro. And I'll, I'll be in contact with you when I get the book. Please do. I hope you guys get the book. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Let's do this again sometime. Okay. Absolutely. I wanted to thank everybody, uh, who showed up live to watch this episode along with us. And of course, Sean Kanan for being such an excellent judge for us. Now, if you've missed an episode of our show, you can always go over to duelingdecades.com. That is now your one-stop shop for all your content for dueling decades. Of course, we're here on YouTube and you can find all of those links right in the show notes of this episode. Also, leave us a comment underneath. Let us know what you thought about this episode and who you really think won. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard. Be heard.